following is a reading from George Barclay's Three Dialogues Between Hylas and Philonous. The part of Hylas is read by Bob Uricu, the part of Philonous by Kevin Brown. You are still then of opinion that extension and figures are inherent in external unthinking substances? I am. But what if the same arguments which are brought against secondary qualities will hold good against these also? Why then, I shall be obliged to think they too exist only in the mind. Is it your opinion the very figure and extension which you perceive by sense exist in the outward object or material substance? It is. Have all other animals as good grounds to think the same of figure and extension which they see and feel? Without doubt, if they have any thought at all. Answer me, Hylas. Think you the senses were bestowed upon all animals for their preservation and well-being in life? Or were they given to men alone for this end? I make no question, but they have the same use in all other animals. If so, is it not necessary that they should be enabled by them to perceive their own limbs and those bodies which are capable of harming them? Certainly. A mite, therefore, must be supposed to see his own foot, and things equal or even less than it, as bodies of some considerable dimension, though at the same time they appear to you scarce discernible, or at best as so many visible points? I cannot deny it. And to creatures less than the mite they will seem yet larger? They will insomuch that what you can hardly discern will to another extremely minute animal appear as some huge mountain? All this I grant. Can one and the same thing be at the same time in itself of different dimensions? That were absurd to imagine. But from what you have laid down it follows that both the extension by you perceived and that perceived by the might itself, as likewise all those perceived by lesser animals, are each of them the true extension of the might's foot. That is to say, by your own principles, you were led into an absurdity. There seems to be some difficulty in the point. Again, have you not acknowledged that no real inherent property of any object can be changed without some change in the thing itself? I have. But as we approach to or recede from an object, the visible extension varies, being at one distance ten or a hundred times greater than at another. Does it not therefore follow from hence, likewise, that it is not really inherent in the object? I own I am at a loss what to think. 
Your judgment will soon be determined if you will venture to think as freely concerning this quality as you have done concerning the rest. Was it not admitted as a good argument that neither heat nor cold was in the water because it seemed warm to one hand and cold to the other? It was. Is it not the very same reasoning to conclude there is no extension of figure in an object because to one eye it shall seem little, smooth and round, when at the same time it appears to the other great, uneven and angular? The very same material substratum call you it. Pray, by which of your senses came you acquainted with that being? It is not itself sensible, its modes and qualities only being perceived by the senses. I presume, then, it was by reflection and reason you obtained the idea of it. I do not pretend to any proper positive idea of it. However, I conclude it exists because qualities cannot be conceived to exist without a support. It seems, then, you have only a relative notion of it or that you conceive it not otherwise than by conceiving the relation it bears to sensible qualities? Right. Be pleased, therefore, to let me know wherein that relation consists. Is it not sufficiently expressed in the term substratum or substance? If so, the word substratum should import that it is spread under the sensible qualities or accidents? True. And consequently under extension? I own it. It is therefore somewhat in its own nature entirely distinct from extension? I tell you, extension is only a mode, and matter is something that supports modes. And is it not evident the thing supported is different from the thing supporting? So that something distinct from and exclusive of extension is supposed to be the substratum of extension? Just so. Answer me, Hylas, can a thing be spread without extension, or is not the idea of extension necessarily included in spreading? It is. Whatsoever, therefore, you suppose spread under anything must have in itself an extension distinct from the extension of that thing under which it is spread? It must. Consequently, every corporeal substance, being the substratum of extension, must have in itself another extension, by which it is qualified to be a substratum, and so on to infinity? And I ask whether this be not absurd in itself and repugnant to what you granted just now, to wit that the substratum was something distinct from and exclusive of extension. The word substratum is used only to express in general the same thing with substance. Well then, let us examine the relation implied in the term substance. Is it not that it stands under accidents? The very same. But that one thing may stand under or support another, must it not be extended? It must. Is not therefore this supposition liable to the same absurdity with the former? You still take things in a strict literal sense. That's not fair, Philonous. I am not for imposing any sense on your words. You are at liberty to explain them as you please. Only I beseech you, make me understand something by them. You tell me matter supports or stands under accidents. How? Is it as your legs support your body? No, that's the literal sense. Pray let me know any sense, literal or not literal, that you understand it in. How long must I wait for an answer, Hylas? I declare I know not what to say. I once thought I understood well enough what was meant by matters supporting accidents. But now, the more I think on it, the less can I comprehend it. In short, I find that I know nothing of it. 
It seems then you have no idea at all, neither relative nor positive, of matter. You know neither what it is in itself, nor what relation it bears to accidents? I acknowledge it. And yet you asserted that you could not conceive how qualities or accidents should really exist without conceiving at the same time a material support of them. I did. That is to say, when you conceive the real existence of qualities, you do withal conceive something which you cannot conceive? It was wrong, I own. If I understand you rightly, you say our ideas do not exist without the mind, but that they are copies, images, or representations of certain originals that do. You take me right. They are then like external things? They are. Have those things a stable and permanent nature, independent of our senses? Or are they in a perpetual change, upon our producing any motions in our bodies, suspending, exerting, or altering our faculties or organs of sense? Real things, it is plain, have a fixed and real nature, which remains the same notwithstanding any change in our senses or in the posture and motion of our bodies, which indeed may affect the ideas in our minds. But it were absurd to think they had the same effect on things existing without the mind. How then is it possible that things perpetually fleeting and variable as our ideas should be copies or images of anything fixed and constant? Or in other words, since all sensible qualities, as size, figure, color, etc., that is, our ideas, are continually changing upon every alteration in the distance, medium, or instruments of sensation, how can any determinate material objects be properly represented or painted forth by several distinct things, each of which is so different from and unlike the rest? Or, if you say it resembles some one only of our ideas, how shall we be able to distinguish the true copy from all the false ones? I profess, Philonus, I am at a loss. But neither is this all. Which are material objects in themselves, perceptible or imperceptible? Properly and immediately, nothing can be perceived but ideas. All material things, therefore, are in themselves insensible, and to be perceived only by their ideas. Ideas, then, are sensible, and their archetypes or originals insensible? Right. But how can that which is sensible be like that which is insensible? Can a real thing in itself invisible be like a color or a real thing which is not audible like a sound? In a word, can anything be like a sensation or idea, but another sensation or idea? I must own, I think not. I see this cherry, I feel it, I taste it, and I am sure nothing cannot be seen or felt or tasted. It is therefore real. Take away the sensations of softness, moisture, redness, tartness, and you take away the cherry. Since it is not a being distinct from sensations, a cherry, I say, is nothing but a congeries of sensible impressions, or ideas perceived by various sensations, which ideas are united into one thing, or have one name given them, by the mind, because they are observed to attend each other. Thus, when the palate is affected with such a particular taste, the sight is affected with a red color, the touch with roundness, softness, etc., Hence, when I see and feel and taste in sundry certain manners, I am sure the cherry exists or is real, its reality being, in my opinion, nothing abstracted from those sensations. But if by the word cherry you mean an unknown nature distinct from all these sensible qualities, and by its existence something distinct from its being perceived, 
then indeed I own neither you nor I nor anyone else can be sure it exists. You indeed said the reality of sensible things consisted in absolute existence out of the minds of spirits, or distinct from being perceived. And pursuant to this notion of reality, you were obliged to deny sensible things any real existence. That is, according to your own definition, you profess yourself a skeptic. But I neither said nor thought the reality of sensible things was to be defined after that manner. To me it is evident, for the reasons you allow of, that sensible things cannot exist otherwise than in a mind or spirit. Whence I conclude not that they have no real existence, but that seeing they depend not on my thought, and have an existence distinct from being perceived by me, there must be some other mind wherein they exist. As sure, therefore, as the sensible world really exists, so sure is there an infinite omnipresent spirit who contains and supports it. What? This is no more than I and all Christians hold. Nay, and all others, too, who believe there's a God, and that he knows and comprehends all things. Aye, but here lies the difference. Men commonly believe that all things are known or perceived by God because they believe the being of a God, whereas I, on the other side, immediately and necessarily conclude the being of a God because all sensible things must be perceived by him. But so long as we all believe the same thing, what matter is it how we come by that belief? But neither do we agree in the same opinion. For philosophers, though they acknowledge all corporeal beings to be perceived by God, yet they attribute to them an absolute subsistence distinct from their being perceived by any mind whatever, which I do not. Besides, is there no difference between saying, There is a God, therefore he perceives all things, and saying, Sensible things do really exist, and if they really exist, they are necessarily perceived by an infinite mind. Therefore there is an infinite mind, or God. This furnishes you with a direct and immediate demonstration from a most evident principle of the being of a God.